Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 70 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 4th of March 2012, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Part 2. And the Bible reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. I invite you to stand this morning to honour the reading of God's precious and holy word, beginning in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Father, we thank you again today for so very much, just for the privilege to approach you in prayer. Lord, for this time that we have together in your house for health and strength to be here when there are so many that don't, for the freedoms that we have to come together and to worship you, Lord, for your word that you've preserved for us that we've just read from in your spirit that lives and dwells within us, Lord, that can take and make these words alive and teach us, Lord, that which we could never learn nor teach ourselves. Father, we thank you that even here this morning, that as you look across this congregation, you can see those, Lord, that have been saved by your grace, but you can also see those that are in need of salvation here today. Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would speak that to hearts which man can never speak, that you would do the drawing that is impossible with us. We pray that you would speak to anyone here today that has never been born again, that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, that you would draw them unto yourself. And Father, for each of your children that is present, you know the hearts, you know the needs, you know what each one needs this day, and Lord, that is beyond us. We pray that you would meet each one as only you can through your word, by the power of your spirit, and all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, I started to say unusual, but maybe different is a better word. My sermon's going to be a little different in a couple of ways today. Um, one is that uh, it's going to be very short. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I can't go quite that far. But uh, but I guess that most of you, if you are here very much, you know that uh, I like to use a lot of scriptures in uh, 
in my sermons when I preach. But I've got quite a few things to say, and I've got plenty of scriptures, but it's going to take longer to get there today because I think there's some groundwork that needs to be laid in order for us to ask ourselves the questions we need to ask once we get to those passages. And secondly, as we look here today, I'm probably, by the time we get to the end of the service, I'm probably going to leave you with more questions than answers. Um, and that's just of, of necessity, but I hope it will make you think because we began last week in our series on contending for the faith. Today we are up to sermon number 70 in this series. And uh, we began last week as we look at the fundamentals that we are to contend for, uh, that God has demanded that we contend for in this life. Uh, and we're looking at the glorious church of Jesus Christ. We just read there in verse 27 that he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, might present it to himself a glorious church. You know, that's the ultimate aim. That's where this is all going. Uh, but as we look at these things, last week we, we split it into four things. We just kind of took an overview. And we looked at uh, the definition of the church, uh, the design, the duty, and the destiny. And we said that we'd be coming back to some of those things in more detail. And so uh, today, uh, we're going to begin to focus our attention more directly at some of these things in hopes that as we work ourselves through it, that we can have a clear picture of just what the church really is and what it's all about. These truths are of such importance that they, they must, of absolute necessity, be included in what we call the, the fundamentals or the very foundation, those foundational truths of the faith for which we are to contend. Now, as with most of the other truths that we have looked at, as we have come this way, we began to see that from Scripture that there are some things that are just so fundamental, that are so foundational, and such are the truths about the church that they simply must underline, bold-faced, they must be accepted, they must be believed in order to be a part of of the one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in what we know to be God's Word for you and I. Very simply, if they were removed from our faith or if they were laid aside as seen not to really be important, the simple truth is, is that you would not have the same faith. You would no longer have the true Christian faith upon which our hopes for now and all of eternity rest. However, there are other important truths, things that we look at that they will certainly be important for the unity of our local church here at Bethel, but on which there will others out there undoubtedly disagree with us but they're still part of the same faith. And part of what we have tried to do as we go through these important foundational truths is to say, look, folks, there's things that we have got to contend for, we have got to fight for, we have got to stand upon, 
or we don't even have the faith that the Lord's left for us. But there's other things that people are splitting hairs over and fighting and dividing and everything that really they may be important to us, but they're not things that we ought to be throwing stones at each other for. I would also remind you that we have spent so much time on this matter of contending for the faith, on these fundamentals that we are to contend for, we've done so for very good reason because I believe with all my heart that it is vital for our health, for us individually as Christians, and certainly for the health of this church. You see, surely, if you just open your eyes and look around, you realize that we live in a day when on the one hand, a lot of people aren't really willing to contend for anything. <laughs> if, it, if, if it comes to having to take a stand or to have to, to actually disagree with somebody else, if they have to take a stand on something that's just not going to be popular with the masses, they don't see any doctrine so important that they would actually stand, let alone fight for it. Many today are more concerned about numbers, about acceptance, about how the world sees us or perceives us to be. They're more concerned. Some of those things are important in the right place, but they're more concerned about those than they are the truths that God has given us and that he himself has told us we must be willing to fight for them if necessary. On the other hand, we look around and we, we see such division amongst God's people. We see that everybody thinks that it's their way or no way. They have often set themselves up on some kind of a pedestal, and though they declare that they are not there, they spend all of their time pointing their finger at others about what others are doing wrong and what others need to be doing to do things like they're doing them, that in the end, they bring division, which is totally contrary to God's word. Yes, we must stand and fight, but it's not my job to point my finger at everybody else out there and tell them how to get their lives and their churches straightened out, and it's not yours, and too many people have taken that position. The simple truth is they somehow see the others as lesser people, as less spiritual because they don't agree with them on so many things that in the end are not the things that make a difference. You see, what I'm trying to say this morning, folks, we're not fighting for the sake of fighting. <laughs> we're not just disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing. I'm saying that God has given us some things that no matter what, we must be willing to stand for, we must be willing to fight for, we must be willing to die for if it comes down to it, or our faith is useless. But at the same time, let's not set ourselves up as judges thinking that everybody else has got to see it and do it the way that I see it, when so many times, so many of those things Come down to personal choices, not God's word that has laid those things. 
Let's be a people as we declare on our sign out front, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth. Let's not ever be willing to compromise the truth in order for somebody to get along with us. But we have another problem. You see, we also live in a day when there's never been more accessible to help us in our Christian growth. There's been never been the accessibility of study tools like there are today. Of course, at the same time, folks, you better realize there's never been more garbage accessible as well. That's stuff that comes straight from the pits of hell, stuff from the world, and so much false teaching and false preaching that is out there on the Internet. They're right there at your fingertips. How do you know what's right? You see, too many Christians of our day don't know enough with all that's available. They don't know enough about their faith to even know what they believe sometimes, let alone why they believe it. Well, I know I believe this because I've always believed it. I know I believe this because our church has always taught it. But as we've gone through this 70, this 70 sermons and still going, the fact is you need to believe it because God says it. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine if you're agreeing with him. And if you see me say something that doesn't agree with him, then you need to come to me. You see, I want you to be able to go out there in the world and not believe something because Pastor Larry told you or because Bethel Free Baptist Church believes it. I want you to go out there and know what you believe because of what God says. And we know we've been there. We've talked about it. Everybody says, I believe what God believes. Everybody says their truths are based upon his word. Well, let me tell you something. When you face God one day, it ain't going to matter what everybody says. It's going to matter what God says. So the only thing I can challenge you, and I have absolutely no fear, is I challenge you to go and to know God's word. Know that it's there, not because somebody says it, but because he says it. We find that we need to know what we believe. But folks, we need to know why we believe it. We find that it is God himself that we saw when we began this series in the book of Jude. It is God himself that demands that we contend, that we fight for this faith. He told us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints right here. We have it. Man can have all kinds of ideas, some good and some bad. Man can reason all kinds of things out. But in the end, I'm saying to you, this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What God says to us, we need to know what the real thing is. I believe with all my heart that I hold it in my hand this morning just as surely as I ever could. We need to be willing. Now, is the church worth fighting for? Is the church worth fighting for? Well, I just remind you once again, Jesus died for it. It must be worth us fighting for it if Jesus was willing to lay down his life and die for his church. We need to understand enough about it to be able to fight for what's important. While 
not being pulled into silly controversies that in the end are only going to split and divide churches and God's people. We look back at where we began last week in our overview, the defining, the defining of a New Testament church. As we look there, we saw that the word that is translated church in our Bibles comes from the Greek word ekklesia, though a little different for me. As I've already said, before that we turn to some of those scriptures this morning, there's a few things in this matter of defining the church that I'd like to just look at that hopefully will help you to see those scriptures in a clear light. You see, we must admit, there are often so many preconceived ideas, preconceived biases in our, in our mind. Some may be true, some may be false, but they cloud our vision because we go so many times we go to God's Word looking for God to prove what we have already decided that we believe rather than letting God teach us from His Word what He wants. It's all too easy for that human mind with all of that input coming into it, with all of the human knowledge we can often approach the Scriptures with those things, never actually giving the Holy Spirit the slightest opportunity to teach us anything. You see, one of the problems we face as we look at this subject is that the word church in our English language, it can mean so many different things. We talked about that a bit last week. You know, we talk about a church. We're talking about some building, that church down on the corner down there. We talk about church. We talk about a service where we're going to have church. We talk about a church. We talk about many times a denomination. We speak of the Church of England or the Baptist Church or the Evangelical Church or whatever, and many times the list could go on and on. It can get a little bit confusing. Well, what is the church? And of course, there are those that believe that their church, whether it be the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever that it might be, that theirs is the only one. And that if you're not part of that one, you're not going to make it through the portals of heaven one day. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, and I'm not even hinting at any mistakes in the Word of God. We covered that subject way back when we first began, the very first of the fundamentals, the basis of our faith, the Word of God you see, I believe without question, much of the world seems to be confused on it today, but I believe without question that I hold the very Word of God in my hand right here. I believe that every word of it was inspired by God, 
And that though that was 2,000 years ago when it was written, that he has preserved it right down through the centuries for you and I today. God didn't make any mistakes when he inspired the writers of his word. He made no mistakes when they sat there and they penned it in those original writings. It was no mistake that he gave it to us, and we've covered that before in the Greek language, which was not only in its day, but one of the most expressive of languages. When his word would have to be translated into many languages all over the world, we find that the simple truth is that God's never made a mistake in any of it, and he didn't make a mistake when he preserved it for us in the English language either. You see, we know that, but that is not an excuse for not studying God's Word, word for word, getting everything that we can from it to help you understand. I took down this definition of what, this happened to be Webster's Dictionary. I like his because at least he comes from a Christian perspective usually, but uh I wrote down this just to give you an idea of, of the number of definitions that are just in one dictionary for the word church. A building for public Christian worship. A religious service in such a building. A world body of Christian believers. Christendom as a whole. Any major division of his body, like a Christian denomination, a Christian congregation, Organized religion as distinguished from the saints. The Christian before the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church. The profession of an ecclesiastic VC to perform a church service of thanksgiving for a woman after childbirth. There's some in there I didn't even know was called a church. <laughs> but the list just goes on. All of these, when we talk about a church, when we use our English word church, that's what it can mean when one word could mean so many different things. How do we find what is the right meaning? How do we begin to take out of all of this and understand, okay, what is God saying to us? What did God mean by this? Well, first of all, always. We've said it so many times from this pulpit as you go to God's Word to find out, let the Scriptures interpret the, the, the Scriptures. Let God interpret His Word Himself. God will never contradict Himself. He's not going to tell you one thing over here and something else completely over here. But we find that when we go, let God interpret it. Look at things in their context in which they are given. We find that... I made a little statement, let God teach you from his word, not man from his words. God's word will teach you correctly. There's not a man alive that can't teach you wrong. There's a second problem, and it's the erroneous teachings of centuries of some of these very groups that call themselves churches. Yes, much of it starting in Catholicism, but filtering right down through 
most of Protestantism as well. Much of that teaching still with us today within many of our mainstream churches. And then, folks, there's just a lot of just off-the-wall crazy people out there too. I mean, false teaching that I started to say even an idiot should recognize, but <laughs> shall, we, shall we say an, an immature, unlearned Christian that even they should be able to recognize some of this stuff. Is, Man, these, these people are just nutters. It goes against God's word. It can't be right. And today, we're not in a lecture hall. I don't want to get up here and give you a, a lecture on etymology today. But I believe there is so much confusion, not just outside the church, but inside the church because of the different things that the word can mean, because of much of the stuff that has been passed right down, falseness to falseness to more falseness, even through the churches. Now, as near as I can tell, the word ecclesia, which is translated church in our Bible, it appears some 118 times. With 115 of those 118 times being translated as the word church and three times as assembly. I think that it would surely help us to look at precisely what this word means that we find so many times that so much of what we do is based on. So I looked at something else. I thought, well, the word church has all these different definitions. Well, what about the word ecclesia? I wonder if it's got just one simple meaning. Well, here's what I found. Definition. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. An assembly. An assembly of the people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. The assembly of the Israelites. Any gathering or throng of men assembled by chance tumultuously in a Christian sense. Now those began, but then I noticed a change. And I made a little note here because it's clear that in the original word, when it was given in our Bible, those things were the definitions, but there's other definitions. You know that definitions can change, that definitions can be added into our dictionaries, and there's some others then that follow an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Well, that wasn't the case when the word was first used, it also goes on to say a company of Christians or of those who, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, observe their own religious rites, hold their own religious meetings, and manage their own affairs according to regulations prescribed for the body for order's sake. Those who anywhere in a city, village, constitute such a company and are united into one body. The whole body of Christians scattered throughout the earth. An assembly of faithful Christians already dead and received into heaven. I'm telling you that even when you go to the dictionary, that it becomes cloudy because many of the definitions there have clearly come after what has been put in our Bibles, not beforehand. What did the word mean then? Well, the term 
and its very basic Greek meaning isn't confusing at all. It means a called out assembly, an assembly of people that have been called out. As a matter of fact, in the day when it was used, a crier would go out through the city and all the citizens of that city would be called out of their homes, out of their businesses, out of wherever they were, and they would be called into the city for the purpose of deliberating some business or deciding on something that was important that all of them would be called out together and assembled together. They were not an ecclesia while they were still in their homes, while they were still in their places of work. They were an ecclesia when they were a called out assembly. That's when they were referred to as an ecclesia. Now, a lot of people I've heard say, and I've seen it written, and I'm not picking bones because I know some people that would say the very same thing today. They would prefer to see the word church in our Bibles because 115 times in our King James Bible, I don't know what it is in all the others. Some would say, well, it would have been better if they had just translated it assembly, if they had just translated it congregation. I mean, if it meant a called-out assembly, why did those King James translators translate it as the word church in our Bibles? And that's the word that stood, and that's what has been used in all the different denominations, regardless of their Bibles and their backgrounds. It's all referred to as a church. Well, if one of those words, I think you're going down a slippery slope, my friends included, if one of those words could have, would have better represented what was being translated in a Bible that God knew, for centuries, that the vast majority of his missionary work, of the winning of souls, of churches being planted around the world would come through that. Why in the world is God not good enough that those hundred men that were set there translating that, that he would have them translate it 115 times out of 118 times in a way that he didn't want? How much confidence, <laughs> Can we truly have in our Bibles if that's the case? Now, without getting technical, because you could spend hours, hours studying all the various dictionaries and lexicons and all those study helps that are out there to, to help you study etymology. But let me give you just a few simple facts, because I don't think it's that hard to understand, folks. If we're going to understand the church, if we're going to do that with a confidence in the Word of God, which is what we're going to base it on, God has not made a mistake. He did not make a mistake when the Word that was first used, because let me tell you something else. You could go back. You could go back to the Septuagint that was being used at that time. You could go back to where the Hebrew had another word, which I'm not even going to begin to try to pronounce, that, uh, that was translated again as, as ecclesia in the New Testament when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek of the Old Testament. There was a couple of words. And for a religious gathering, one of those was a word that we get our word synagogue from, which specifically spoke of, of that. There were other words that could have been used. God didn't make a mistake when he gave us this word. Remember these facts. 
the term ecclesia that was used in the original Greek writings with the simple meaning of a called out assembly. It was a term that could be used of any type of assembly, but it was always, as I said, it was a literal gathering or congregation of people for a specific purpose. I said there are only three times in Scripture that it's translated any other way except church. And that's when the term assembly is used instead. We won't, for the sake of time, turn, but if you wanted to, you can find all three of those in one chapter, which is in Acts chapter 19 of your Bible, in verses 32, 39, and 41. And if I refresh you, this is when an assembly, an ecclesia, a called-out assembly, was called in Ephesus to oust Paul and his companions out of Ephesus. Why? Because they were starting to interfere with the silversmith and their making of the idols of Diana, the shrines that were being sold. And boy, they got all upset because this is starting to cut into their revenue and we've got to do something to stop these guys. And they called an assembly in order to run them out of town. And the word is translated assembly all three times in that chapter. Now, keep this in mind also. The English word church, that word descends from an old English word which is spelled C-I-R-I-C-E. That word was akin to an old German word that was spelled K-I-R-I-H-H-A, Kiraha. But both of those words derive from a late Greek word. Kyriakon, K-U-R-I-A-K-O-N, which comes from another Greek word, kyriakos, which is the possessive form of the word kurios, which is the term for Lord. That's where it all came from. That's where it all originated from. You see, kyriakos simply means Lords, it's showing possession. It shows something that is belonging to the Lord. It can denote anything that belongs to the Lord. And I found that very curious because I studied the matters of the church a long time, but I'd never traced back to English word. I never, you know, figured out, you know, why did these, why did these English translators, why did they use the word church if assembly would have been more accurate. Well, when you put all these things together, you've got this Greek word ekklesia in the Greek writings, meaning a called out assembly being translated in our English Bibles into the word church, which means belonging to the Lord. You see, the ecclesia of Scripture, that called out assembly in context is always speaking of the Lord's assembly. It's not just any ecclesia. It's not just any called out assembly. It's one that belongs to the Lord himself. You see, I said, wow. <laughs> so you got this word that means a called out assembly that's translated into a word that has the idea of belonging to the Lord. You've got a called out assembly that belongs to the Lord. <laughs> I don't think that was a mistake, folks. 
I don't think that that was God messing up somewhere. I don't think it was the translators messing up. We're talking about God's assembly. We're talking about God's congregation. So as one myself that doesn't believe in error in God's word, but that God's word is meant to be read, but it's also meant to be studied word for word. To know, which we, we talk about it when we, we base our present. We base our eternities upon it. We base our, our lives upon it. And yet, how much time does it have in our lives? Most of the time, some new series coming on the TV has a place of higher priority than the Word of God does. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> there are many things that suddenly has a prior, higher priority. Just don't have the time to sit down and read and study and know God's Word. We wonder. You see, when we look at these things, the simple explanation that I genuinely believe, and it is consistent with God's Word and the Scripture, is that the word church is used for a very good reason. There are those that prefer not to use it. That's fine. But it excited me to say, man, well, God knew exactly what he was doing. This is a called-out assembly of the Lord's. This is one that belongs to him rather than just any assembly. The only place that it wasn't the Lord's in the Bibles, the three times, it was translated assembly because it wasn't one that belonged to the Lord, but it was those town peoples. If we, in turn, apply that to two areas in which there are numerous ideas from many well-meaning and godly students of God's Word, I believe that it will help us to define what the church of Scripture is. I would further say that from our, I mean, we're not out there in left or right field somewhere. I mean, we're pretty orthodox in our belief of what the church is. It's what our historical Baptist forefathers have taught right down through the years. Now, there are some of us that have different terminologies. There are some of us that would express it in different ways, but in practice in the way that it works. There's very little disagreement when it comes to that. I want to read you, as we have with the other fundamentals, what we ourselves say about the church in the statement of faith of our church. It says, we believe in the church, capital C, the body of Christ, which is made up of all blood-bought, born-again believers from the public ministry of Christ until his coming again for his own, the rapture. Some are already in heaven. The group has never all been together at one time. So in this respect, very important, folks, we could say that the church with the capital C is in prospect. The church will be together for the first time at the time of the rapture. We further say we also believe in the churches, small c, local assemblies. The scriptures teach us much more concerning the local churches than the church. 
These local churches consist of regenerated believers who have been scripturally baptized, buried with him in baptism, and are banded together for worship, work, and spiritual fellowship, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth according to the specific teachings of the New Testament. Christ is the head of the church and the churches. The authority to carry on the work of God in this dispensation is given to the local church, the visible body of Christ in this dispensation as such. All Christians and all Christian ministries should be the ministry of and accountable to a local New Testament church. Scripture knows nothing of authority of or accountability to a single universal church. Each local church is to be independent, autonomous, and free from political authority or ecclesiastical hierarchy, we believe, in separation of church and state. That's what our statement of faith says. Now, we've got a lot of explaining to do as we go through that and try to understand all of that, but I'm telling you, that's where we're going to. In this idea of defining the New Testament church, I want us to look at two things in the defining of that. One is, and we're not even going to get through the first one this morning. <laughs> one is simply what I call the prospective church, and the other is the present church. The prospective church and the present church. The term that is familiar to most people is this term universal church or universal invisible church. What does it mean? I want you to ask yourself some questions. What does that mean? Is there such a thing? Well, first of all, I will tell you this. The term is nowhere found in Scripture in the Word of God. So we can't use the term on that basis. If the term isn't specifically used, is there a basis for it that's laid down in Scripture based upon the principles that are put together just like we use the term rapture, and I believe with all my heart that's a biblical thing. Though it's not called the rapture, but we certainly find ourselves being caught up out of here, which we term as the rapture. So I'm saying, is it there? Or is there something there that gives us a right to call it that? We also have to consider what's meant by this term. You see, we have another problem. Many people use the same terms, but mean very different things. Many speak of a universal, invisible church, meaning some kind of a mystical body that all Christians are part of, and in many cases as a result... They will either lessen the necessity of the local church altogether or just simply do away with it. Many are quick to identify themselves with some mystical, invisible body that cannot be seen, yet not so ready to identify themselves with a visible local body that we call the church. Many declarations or statement of faith are 
quick to identify themselves with a universal church to say little or nothing of the local church. May I say to you that that kind of thinking and that kind of explanation simply violates and perverts the very word of God and what he teaches us. I'll say this, and I'll tell you this honestly. You know, I, I don't like the term universal. As a matter of fact, in our statement of faith, you'll find that uh, it was used one time there, uh, and it was used in a negative context <laughs> that we don't believe that there's any kind of a universal church that has authority where the people's accountability is too. But you notice that in there, even though I said that, so we do believe in the church, the one true church. Pretty sure you're contradicting yourself. I hope not by the time that we get to the end of this. I believe that so many times terminologies have got confused and we just accept things that are just absolutely wrong, that are not God's word. The word brings a lot of confusion because so many people mean so many different things by it. It's not a biblical term. The scriptures nowhere teach us anything that would best be identified by such a term. Folks, I believe that what we use should, yes, be clear, but it should be biblical. Whether we're saying it, whether we're singing it, if it's got anything to do with, with, with the Lord, then it ought to be based upon God's Word. I want to read a few scriptures, but really all I'm going to do is really just read the first one to you, and I'm going to try to stop there. And I'm going to leave you with a whole lot of questions that if you want to start getting a few more answers, then be here next Sunday, amen. First Corinthians chapter 12 is a familiar passage. It's one that we have certainly looked at already even in this series when we were talking about, of course, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. But we find as we, as we look here in chapter 12, I want you to, uh, to notice down in verses 12 to 14, the Word of God says this. He says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Now, I would ask you a question, first of all, if we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions on these passages, is this passage... Is it speaking of a local assembly, a local church, or is it speaking of a universal church? Is it speaking? It speaks very clearly of a body, and it goes on to describe all the parts of that body. Is it speaking of a visible body or an invisible body that you can't see anyway? Is the church and the body of Christ. Is it one and the same thing? 
because some would say yes and some would say no, that they're two different things. Now, there's a lot of places that we could look, but I'll answer at least one question before next week. If you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, we'll be looking right through the book of Ephesians, God willing, next Sunday. It's said that the book of Ephesians possibly is the highest of all books in the Bible as far as speaking of the church. Even though it gives no order and design and things of that, it deals so much with the church right the way through it. But in Ephesians chapter 1, notice what he says in verse 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his, the Lord Jesus Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him that filleth all in all. So I'm going to answer at least part of the question. The Word of God itself declares that the church is the body of Christ. But what church is that? Is that visible or invisible? Is it a local church or something else? I believe with all my heart, folks, this all becomes so clear as we look through Scripture. There's nothing to be confused about. But the first step in understanding is understanding that the Bible itself, what we're reading there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's dealing with the body, is dealing with the church. Is it dealing with the local church? Or is it dealing with one true church? I'll even tell you this, and I believe it will become clear as we look through. I believe it could apply to both, but I certainly don't think it's anything invisible. It has nothing to do with an invisible body that doesn't exist. And I'll say this. I'm just kind of giving myself away a little bit. Nobody believes, and this is where terminology changes sometimes. As we look through the Scriptures, we'll find this, I believe, with all my heart. I believe in the church, a called-out assembly of the Lord's. As we said in our statement of faith, there's a simple word there that says the church in prospect. How can you on the one hand use a term that is speaking of a called-out assembly? Some would say, well, we speak of the invisible church because people that have been called out of the world and into the Lord. But folks, that's not the, what the word means. It doesn't mean just being called. Those people weren't just called out of their homes or out of their businesses or whatever. They were called out and assembled together in one place. I'm saying to you that it's a very contradiction on the one hand to speak of an invisible body that everybody belongs to that is a church that is by its very definition, an assembled group of the Lord's that's brought together. Well, I believe that as we look, well, there is a church, one true church. It is in prospect. I believe, believe as we look through the Scriptures, you'll find and hopefully agree with me, that is a church that, yes, there's only one way we'll find out that you can become a part of it, 
That's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a true church. We like to believe everybody. You know, we make it as part of the point of joining this church that you must give a testimony of knowing that you are saved, that you've been born again, that you're a child of God. The true church, there is no, there's no tear among the wheat in the true church, in the church. We try, but I believe that we are an imperfect picture of that, that the visible local body of Christ will see is the present church that you and I are with. I hope and pray, because we'll find there's only one way to be part of that true church. The Bible will teach us that that's to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where we'll go to with that. But that church is in prospect. That church will be called out of this world, both those that have gone before us, those that are still here. That church will be called out and gathered together in one big assembly in the sky at the rapture. Now, your name needs to be written down there now. You're one of the citizens, just like those in the towns. But it's, it's only an assembly that is planned, that will be, that is in prospect to us right now. But it's only now that you can get your name on the list to be called out, to become one of those system, citizens that will be part of that called-out assembly. It's not confusing. We're going to look at a number of passages and I hope these passages will excite you as it excites me. Folks, the church is an exciting thing. To know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you will be in that assembly when the, when the church is all called out of here, the true church, all born-again believers of all time, to meet with him in the air and then in heaven. We'll find that right now, right now. You need to know above all else that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because that's how you're going to be part of that group. If you don't know that today, then I invite you, please, don't leave here without having that certainty, without knowing that. And Christians, what a privilege. What a privilege to be identified with the body of Christ. Because I want to tell you something. I don't mean to be crude. I don't mean to be rude. We don't need an invisible church in this world. The church is too invisible as it is. We need a visible body, a visible church. Well, I hope one day, I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to that day when all the saints, when that church will be visible for the first time. And I believe with all my heart that I'm going to be there, and I hope you're going to be there with me. But right now, we need the body of Christ to be visible. We need Christ to be visible to this world. This is how he's chosen to do it. So today, do you know that you're part of the body of Christ? If you don't, you can. He wants you to. And Christians, it's an exciting thing to be a part, a part of the true church, a part of the local church, the body of Christ, the place where he's working in this world. Father, we thank you today for our time together. Lord, I said in the beginning that I knew that, Lord, of sheer necessity that I was going to leave a lot of unanswered questions today. But I trust and pray, Lord, that as we begin to piece these scriptures together, that you will show and give us a clear understanding, Lord. Lord, help none of us to approach your word with preconceived ideas of man. 
but help us to come and openly look at what the Word of God says, knowing that you'll interpret it, that you'll never contradict, or that you've given us your Word, and that it's there for us to study so that we can know, not so that we can be confused. I pray today that you would speak to the hearts. If there be anyone here that's never been saved, I pray, Lord, that this would be the day that they would give their heart to you. Lord, for every Christian, I pray that you'd help them to recognize the importance not only of being a child of God, but to serve you through a visible, living organism here upon this earth that Jesus Christ is able to be seen by this world. Lord, I pray. I pray that you would build your church here at Bethel as you see fit, that you would make us what you would have us to be, and we give you all the glory and praise for it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. 